Tell me a little bit about the environment that you grew up in. I grew up in West Virginia, and I've met some Kiwis since I've been here from central New Zealand and from the South Island. And honestly, the way they describe their upbringing, you know, living out in rural areas out in the bush, that sounds a lot like where I grew up. Like, it sounds exactly the same, all the same problems, all the same perceptions. Yeah, it was rough. I knew people that grew up in dilapidated houses. I knew people that didn't have, like, opportunities when they got out of high school. I was one of those people in a lot of ways. Hi, everybody. Um, my name's Caleb. Uh, I'm just going to get right into it. I fell down the alt-right rabbit hole. This is The Detail. I'm Emil Donovan, and that is Caleb Kane. He visited New Zealand earlier this month in the lead-up to the anniversary of the Christchurch mosque shootings. You're about to meet a man who says he was radicalized by alt-right figures via their persuasive YouTube videos. But then he somehow de-radicalized himself, and he's now working to help others get out. When you say the same sorts of problems, the same issues, what are you talking about? What were the big problems and, and issues when you were growing up? Yeah, so I don't want to speak for New Zealand, but the, the Kiwis that I talked to, they talked about domestic abuse, they talked about alcohol abuse, um, they talked about broken families, they talked about having to do things to, you know, to get by, you know, because you don't have much money and you don't have much opportunity, so you gotta you got to make do with what you have. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I was the poorest of the poor. You know, I had a decent house, but I had a lot of friends that didn't, and they really struggled growing up. Were you political from a young age? I, if you consider middle school, like late middle school and high school, a young age, then yeah. I was pretty progressive, and I was pretty obnoxious about it. But I wouldn't say that I had, like, any strong basis for that. It was mostly I'd watch something, and then I'd feel, you know, emotionally about that. As a teenager, how much time would you spend online on computers or, or playing video games, that sort of stuff? Oh, I... I grew up in West Virginia, man. There was nothing to do. Um, I spent uh, a lot of time um, on the computer and playing video games. I didn't play sports. I didn't do any art. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was the majority of my time. If I wasn't out skateboarding, I was playing video games. Because you are, and I am too, actually. We're, I think you're 27, I'm 28. You and I are sort of part of this first first real generation to properly grow up with the Internet as like a big part of life. Do you think that that sort of online connectivity had an impact on how you grew up? Yeah, so I, I definitely think it did. Um, that was, I, I often, you know, I kind of jokingly say, but like half serious, like that's my culture, right? Being on Chan boards or being on YouTube or being on, you know, the internet. That's kind of like where I grew up um, other than, you know, West Virginia. And arguably I spent more time on there than I did you know, hanging around my town. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of my life. Did you have boundaries when it came to sort of being online, or could you pretty much do what you liked? Oh, I would say that, like, most people that grew up my age, there were no rules. Like, our parents didn't even understand that stuff. You know, I lived with my grandparents. They didn't understand any of that stuff. And I looked up all types of crazy stuff when I was in high school, you know. Um, none of it ever stuck, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, the Internet's a, a bizarre place when you're a teenager. What did you do? How would you sort of spend your time? you get home from school. How would your spare time kind of unfold? 
on the internet, I guess I'd go home. I'd play World of Warcraft. I would watch YouTube videos. I'd find some sort of weird website or some like I'm 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 a person who's like a, an information junkie. I love reading about bizarre stories. I'd read about cults. I'd read about you know uh, all, all all sorts of strange stuff because um, that's just you know what you did on the internet. You just looked for something that was edgy or bizarre. Spent a lot of time doing that. Again, back in high school, none of it really ever stuck. Um, I never went down any sort of weird rabbit hole back then that I took seriously. But, yeah, it's, I'd spent a lot of time on the Internet like that. So when did you start to to fall down the rabbit hole? When, when did these videos become a part of your life and under what circumstances? Yeah, so I went to college um, to try to, you know, improve my life. I was going to go to college for... Uh, engineering. I wanted to help the environment. I was very progressive at the time. I went to a small college. I ended up getting depressed. I had undiagnosed ADHD, and I dropped out. And during the time that I was in college, you know, 18 to 21, I wasn't in college that whole time, but I spent time, you know, drifting around to different friends after I dropped out. But that whole time period from 18 to 21, I kind of took a break from the Internet. I didn't have time for it. I was out running around with friends or I was in school or I was working. Um, And then whenever I came back to my hometown in West Virginia at the age of 21, I ended up just kind of laying in bed all day because I was so depressed. I mean, I had failed school. I had tried moving in with all these different friends and failed at that. And I just felt defeated. And so that's when I turned back to the Internet for comfort because it's all I had at the time. And I just watched all sorts of stuff, like just like I used to, except this time I ended up finding self-help content. And that motivated me because I wanted to fix myself, right? I had this idea that I could fix myself. But then I found Stefan Molyneux through that content. And through that, that's when I began the rabbit hole into the, what you might call the alt-right. Looking at human beings as one species is not biologically valid. We are a variety of subspecies, politically, um, ethnically sometimes, uh, definitely in terms of gender, in terms of IQ, uh, in terms of culture, they, these produce physical but de- brain differences that are very hard to remediate when you get older. And so we are a cluster of genetics all fighting to reproduce their own particular genetics. You know, before when I would watch YouTube, I never had any sort of relationship or any sort of... I never... No, nothing ever stuck. But with him, uh, it, it just clicked immediately. He... Uh, Molyneux has a very charming personality. He's very charismatic. He's very intelligent. He styles himself on being a philosopher and making arguments and caring about the truth and honor and virtue. And those are all things that appealed to me. He was giving me advice that on the outside was improving my life. I got up out of bed. I got a job. I got a girlfriend. And also, I think that because I had such strained relationships with my family, and this is what I think is the most important part that I think people need to pay attention to, is I had a parasocial relationship with Steph. And what that means is I had a relationship with him. I looked up to him. He was a mentor to me. But it was a one-way relationship. He did not even know I existed. And this is very common for people on YouTube. And I looked up to Steph as a father figure. So he, he sort of filled a void in your life, in a sense. Yeah. 
yeah, he he filled a very deep, deep void that I had. Um, and that's a, that's true for a lot of people that fall into this alt-right rabbit hole thing, right? I started watching his content, and I just hung on his every word. And then, you know, because of all the improvements I was making, when, when he started talking about the political stuff, I just fell right into it. I mean, and it was interesting, too, the way he would talk about things. And it was things I'd never heard before. Um, and so I just, I got sucked straight in. Uh, and it was through, I would watch his videos, and then he would do interviews with people. And I'd watch those. And then the algorithm would feed me more videos. And so I'd watch those. And that's how I, like, went down this, like, daisy chain of content creators that gets increasingly more right-wing up into the point that, you know, at the end of it, I'm listening to Jared Taylor, who's a self-proclaimed white nationalist, and questioning myself, you know, should I be a white nationalist? Like, is that the answer? Is that how I'm going to preserve my country? When you talk about the improvements that came to your life, what what are you talking about there? You mentioned that you found a place to stay, you'd got a girlfriend, but what was the message that helped your life? Was it was it the sort of be confident, take control kind of thing? That's exactly it. You've keyed in on it. See, this is something that I don't think, you know, lefties and liberals, I don't think that they don't care about the, this thing. But the right wing has a they've they've co-opted the brand of personal responsibility. Like they own that brand. They talk about it all the time, you know, being personally responsible, taking responsibility for all your actions and improving your life, and it's on you. I felt that to be really empowering. I wish that messaging was on the left more, but that's that really it, it just it, it was it was life changing for me because then I really did stop, you know, just moping about. I got up out of bed and I really, you know, I went after life. Positive messages like this one from controversial Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. I don't think that people have talked to young people about responsibility in any real sense. Not in, not and being on their side at the same time for like 50 years. And that's just too long because most people find the meaning in their life through responsibility. Life's rough, no doubt about it. And if good luck comes your way, then you should be grateful for it. And if happiness manages to manifest itself, you should be grateful for that too. You've mentioned before that this is a sensation, that feeling of disempowerment and, I guess, floating through life is one that a lot of particularly poor, white, young men feel in America. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that feeling breaks the barrier of class. You can have people in the middle class that feel that way as well. And I don't think it's just young white men that feel this way. I think it's a lot of people that feel this way. I think that young white men don't feel that there's any messaging specific to them that encourages them. I mean, you know, we could argue about that, like, if, if that's something that should should be done or not. But But there is this feeling that life used to be structured a certain way and that there was an order to things. You know, you've got... You, you graduated high school, you got a degree, you got a job, you got a house, you got married, you had kids, you had a retirement plan. You went to church, you went to your union meeting, you had a picnic on Saturday, and you had a life. And that's been shattered. That's been shattered for a lot of different reasons. We, we live in this like kind of neoliberal capitalist world where it's gone too far. I think we need to put regulations on it. I think we need to provide people with the material things that they need. You know, there's there's some towns where there's no jobs. There's none. And there's never going to be any. And there's no level of education. These people can't go back to school and become programmers, you know. So there's got to be something done about that. There's people that can't afford houses. 
You know, if you can't afford a house, you don't feel like you own something. You don't feel like you're a part of something. You know, you feel like you're just drifting through. You're, you're transitory. And then finally, I think that what's happened in our modern world is we've destroyed myth. We've destroyed community. We've destroyed tradition. And for a lot of reasons, we destroyed those things because organized religion was oppressive, I think, to a lot of people. But we never replaced it with anything positive. All we did was critique and deconstruct. And so I think now, left in that void, that economic and that sort of spiritual void, if you will, people feel lost and disenfranchised, and they're searching out for something. And it's no different than the conditions we saw in you know, the 1930s, the 1920s and 30s. People felt disenfranchised. They felt lost. They didn't see a future for themselves. And then whenever the fascists came along, they, they gave themselves up to it because they were offering answers when no one else was. And I think right now the far right is the ones offering up answers, and they have a long history of civilization to point back to. And that's what you see in the propaganda, pointing back to Western civilization, pointing back to times of, you know, whenever we colonized the world and we created all these things and we built all these societies and things were, you know, preserved and, and prosperous. And now people don't feel that way. Now people feel like they're just getting by and there's nothing to look forward to. We have to fight back against that because that's what's that's what's allowing them to recruit people. It's not algorithms. It's not brainwashing. That's a supply that's filling a demand. We have to fill that demand with something more positive. If you've just tuned in to uh, the radio, we currently have the RNZ team across this developing story out of Christchurch where armed police have been deployed after reports of shots being fired at a mosque near Hagley Park in Christchurch. Uh, according to eyewitnesses, uh, there have been injuries and we're getting some more information on that up. Obviously, we're uh, keen to make sure that information is verified before we share it across the radio. So that's um, we're sharing with you what we know. Do you remember where you were when you found out what had happened in Christchurch? Yes, I woke up. So because of the time zone, it had happened, you know, during the day for you guys, but I didn't see anything until I woke up in the morning, woke about 6 a.m. Uh, I saw the text, you know, the alerts. And, and I'll be honest with you, there's so many shootings in the United States that at first I didn't think much of it. Uh, it wasn't until I got to work and I started seeing alerts about white nationalism, great replacement, and it, my heart dropped. Because I knew what the Great Replacement was. I believed in the Great Replacement. And I went into the bathroom and I read I read the manifesto. I read the articles and I went home that night. I watched the video. I saw the memes that he shared. And it, it, really, it really disturbed me because I never thought about going out and shooting anybody, right? I never thought about doing that. But I, I saw myself in that, in that guy. I mean, he believed in everything. Now, I had, I had believed in a watered-down version of all these things, right? Because that's how white supremacy and white nationalism has proliferated itself, is it's had to rebrand and recontextualize itself for people that are more liberal or centrist or not as engaging in racist behavior. But even though I believed in a watered-down version of it, like, that was what I believed. It was, it was right there in his text, and um, it disturbed me. Again, we talked earlier about how I was a part of this online community. I see myself as the online is my, is, that's my culture, right? And so I felt like 
This was in my backyard. This came from the 4chan boards. This came from the 8chan boards. This was someone from my community in a sense. And it was disturbing to me. It was disturbing the ideology, how similar it was to mine. And um, it was a week later that I decided that I was going to make a video and tell my story. What was the process that led you out of that world? So what led me out of it was, um, in part, YouTube. That's at least what started the process. I was obsessed with YouTube when I used to watch it. I'd, I, at one point, I had a job that I was allowed to wear headphones, and I would listen to over 12 hours of YouTube a day. Probably more than that, though. You know, I would just go through content like crazy. I'd find a channel. I'd eat through it. Eventually, I found a channel by the name of Destiny, and it was run by a man uh, named Stephen Bennell. And Stephen Bennell is a Twitch streamer in the United States. But around the Trump election, around that time, uh, he started getting invested in Internet politics. And by Internet politics, I mean people debating and talking about politics online in a kind of philosophical ideological sense. He would go through and debate figures in the alt-right and the far-right. And the first debate that I saw him have with the far-right was with Lauren Southern. These are the arguments that I'm making right now. These are arguments that the economist that you cited makes. Like he has an article where he talks about immigration being a net positive for society, that there are drawbacks, that immigration does hurt some member of societies. But the, this is the problem that I have, um, is that I feel like the conversation should be about what can we do to mitigate the negative aspects of immigration, and then what can we do to expand upon the benefits of immigration. That should be the conversation. That is the reasonable conversation. This idea that immigration is a a net negative or a net drain on the economy is an idea that's not supported by any leading economist, even the one that you cite in your book. Okay, okay. <laughs> and Lauren Southern was another figure that was very important to me. You know, you might also say that I had a parasocial relationship with her, as embarrassing as that is. And when he debated her on mass immigration, which was the thing I was concerned about the most, you know, Muslims and North Africans moving into Europe during the migrant crisis in mass. I watched it, and he just obliterated her on all the facts, on the arguments, and she kind of just sat there nervously, like dancing around, moving the goalposts between arguments, trying to avoid him, you know, backing her into a corner. And I thought it was embarrassing for her. But it was shocking to me because I didn't understand. There's this idea when you're on the far right that you're red-pilled, right? You've awoken to the truth of reality. You you see objective reality. So how is it that someone that has access to objective reality, how could they be wrong? So I watched a lot of that stuff. And then I also had some experiences in real life. And then I also started going on these Discord servers. Discord's an online chat program. And I would talk to trans people and Muslim people and, you know, all different types of people. And I started to just, through the YouTube videos and, and through having those conversations and all those perspectives, I started to realize that the world was a lot more complicated than I thought it was. It was a lot less black and white. And a lot of this stuff that I believed in was just a bunch of, like, motivated conspiracy theories to try to get me to believe in some, like, neo-Nazi ideology. And, um, I mean, there was no one point that I was like, oh, I'm not... A, you know, I'm not on the far right anymore, but it was just a slow process. It took maybe a year, a year and a half. Why is what you have to say valuable? Why is it important? I think that 
hearing the stories, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for myself too much, but I think hearing the stories of people that have fallen into this is valuable. It shows people that there's another way out. It shows people that these beliefs aren't as concrete as people think they are. Um, I do always worry that, you know, I'm the one speaking on this. You know, you, I often think that it should be you know, maybe a person of color speaking on this, or it should be someone, you know, maybe the victims of this that should be should be giving this message. But, you know, I'm the one here giving it. Um, and so any way that I can platform, you know, the people that are harmed by this or any way that I can help people come out of this, I want to do anything that I can to help. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holle and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Caleb Kane. Ka kite anō.